Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pivot Podcast. Each week, join career coaches and Pivot Discovery co-founders, Alexandra Balistrieri and Kimberly Tilly, as they interview an extraordinary and inspiring guest who successfully pivoted away from unfulfilling work to pursue their dreams. Benefit from their insight and experience and leave with actionable tips to reframe your future. We're excited to bring you today's show where we're joined by Matthew Wall, a high school English teacher and academic leader for young students. We're going to talk about his dynamic journey from student to musician to teacher and the pivots he took along the way. Listen as he shares his perspective on the education industry, the complexities surrounding virtual learning, and his advice on what you can do now to make a difference in your career. Now let's jump into today's interview. Welcome, Matt. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you. Oh, thank you. Matt, you've had a really interesting, unusual career journey. Before we talk about what you're doing now, which I know you're really passionate about, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are? Absolutely. I grew up in the Bay Area, and I teach in the Bay Area, so I kind of went full circle. I went to San Diego for undergrad, and that it was the UC that was furthest away from home, so I just wanted to get out, and it ended up being a really great fit. When I was in my undergrad, I was a musician. I was a bass player when I was in high school, and I was in bands and whatnot, and I was always interested in playing music. The music department at UC San Diego is very cutting-edge and uh, avant-garde, and it was just a really great fit for me, especially as a young person exploring the arts. And I ended up actually studying interdisciplinary art and doing some computer programming and kind of exploring different technologies at the time. Meanwhile, I was studying upright bass with a great professor named Mark Dresser. And it was just a really rewarding experience. I liked all my other classes and my other disciplines, but I always was drawn to the art. I had a few friends that were living in New York that had gone to the new school and they were musicians themselves. And I knew I had known them since I was young. The final semester of school, they were really urging me to move out there to New York with them. I didn't really know what else to do. I didn't have a job lined up, so I moved there. I think I graduated June 2nd or something, and I was already paying rent at an apartment in New York. Do you play bass in high school, and then you study interdisciplinary arts? What other instruments do you play besides bass? Bass is my primary instrument. I, I started with the electric bass. Well, actually, I started with the saxophone when I was like in third grade, but my main instrument was uh, electric bass and then the upright bass. I'm somewhat competent at the piano and somewhat competent at guitar. The interdisciplinary aspect of the degree was more about incorporating digital arts, and including visuals, studying multimedia work. So it was sort of a uh, put-it-together-yourself degree. You kind of got to explore the art department and make the degree that you wanted to do. So it's a pretty cool thing that so people should check out if they're interested in it. And it's so neat that you play all those instruments and they're all very different from each other. Definitely. It's um, something that I feel really privileged to be able to do. And it's one of those things where it's all about opportunity. You know, my, my parents were very supportive of me. And along the way, I've had great teachers and great friends and colleagues that have really inspired me. It was really important to my development as a musician, but as a person as well. So you were saying that you moved to New York then? Yeah, so in 2010, the year I graduated, 
I moved directly to New York and I was living in this apartment complex where three of the apartments were taken over by these students. My friends went to the new school and they were all students of that college. And basically it was a house of musicians and it was an incredible place to live and it was loud and it was fun and it was wild. But it was a collective of really interesting and talented people living together and making music. So it was ama- it was really amazing. Wow, that sounds so fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Obviously, you have dynamic people there and some egos and people who are trying to create art. So there's def- there was definitely some turmoil here and there but all in all like it was a very creative place and a lot of my empathy and my creativity was honed there so I really got a lot out of living there with those great people and great musicians. That's really really cool it sounds just like a really great creative place filled with talent and where you could really just thrive and explore and grow especially during your early 20s. That's exactly it it was just the perfect time and place for me to be there. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you were doing there as a musician out in New York and what kind of job you were working then? I was definitely hustling around the city at first. I was a little bit lost as a 22-year-old, not really knowing what I'm doing. I definitely thought that New York was going to be this place where I would just kind of slide in and be successful. And I already had my friends there. And it certainly wasn't that way. You know, at first it was really tough. It was hard to be away from my family. It was hard to be away from California. I started playing more. I started playing live music with some of my friends and some of my colleagues. I worked some odd jobs at restaurants, just filler jobs to pay the rent and whatnot. By the end of my time in New York, I had a job at a after-school art program where I was the director. And this was like a kindergarten to eighth graders. And then on top of that, I had a handful of private students that I would meet once a week or maybe twice a week. Without knowing it, I was really digging into my career as an educator, but I was just doing what I loved. I was teaching art, being around kids, and teaching music. That was a first taste that I got in like formal education and tutoring and, and teaching music. The last year before I left New York, I, I kind of had to make a big decision of whether or not I was going to stay there. Because I felt like if I was going to be a musician and go through that hustle and teach private lessons and, and live that life, I would have to commit myself to doing so. And that meant I was going to sign up for five or 10 years of living in New York. In 2012, there was Hurricane Sandy, and that really shook me a little bit because New York got shut down. I was never in any immediate danger, but it was something that put my alarm on and said, maybe this isn't the place for you. And that's how I ended up coming back to California. Wow. So how long were you there altogether? I was there four years. So I consider it my second bachelor degree almost. I got a bachelor degree in New York City. (laughs) No easy place to live, right? And it's definitely really different moving coast to coast like that. And, and you were doing all of that working while also playing music, right? And playing gigs and, and doing that whole musician hustle on the side, correct? Yeah, and practicing. You know, a lot, a lot of my day, I was waking up early, drinking a whole bunch of coffee and practicing. And that was something that I really feel fortunate to have had. 
whatever job or whatever talent you have, if you don't have the hours to spend practicing and getting better, you won't excel. And I was very lucky to have those opportunities and to live in a place with a bunch of musicians that supported me and helped me cultivate those talents. That's so important. I just want to circle back to what you said. It can be really overlooked, this idea of being an artist or a musician or, or a writer. It is a skill and it's a craft that you really have to work hard at. You can't just show up to band practice or show up to your next gig and expect to play the perfect piece. It takes many, many, many hours of dedicated, quiet time of practice. Absolutely. It's something that you can be told a million times, but the only way to learn that lesson is to, to fail and to feel like you aren't good enough a few times and to be persistent and to not give up and to decide, you know what, if I screw up on this gig or I play the wrong note, I'm going to stay persistent. You have to take your failures, as, especially as a musician, as motivation to get better. The more practice and the more dedication, the more nuances and skills you develop. It's definitely something that sticks with me, even though I'm not a professional musician right now. Absolutely. Matt, when you came back to California, what was your vision for what you wanted to do? So that's a great question. I did not have that much of a vision when I first came here. I was a little bit lost in my 20s. I worked uh, supporting a, a family member who had special needs for a little while. I was doing all right, but, you know, I, w I was a little bit of a lost person in my mid-20s, not sure exactly what I was going to do. At some point, I decided that I'd figure out what I want to do and how to make a buck. After brainstorming some ideas, and I entertained the idea of maybe going to law school or maybe getting an MFA or something like that, I decided that I really did want to stick with education. In New York, I really did like going to school and interacting with young people it just gave me those warm feelings that sound corny to articulate, but it was something that drew me back into education. I applied to a couple of credentialing programs, and I got into the education program at the University of San Francisco. I had to make a choice of what I wanted to teach, whether I was going to teach younger grades or whether I was going to teach high school, and if high school, what subject. And I figured that while it was interesting to me to become a music teacher, I was really making this choice to become a teacher in part to gain some stability and to gain a, a, a secure job, so to speak. And English was a class that was a core class. It was a class that would be needed in every school. It would afford me the ability to basically teach whatever I wanted to I did like literature and I did like to read and I was a fairly good writer and I've grown to become a better teacher in that subject. But that was sort of my thinking in deciding to go to grad school and become a teacher. You got a master's in education then? Yeah, that's correct. I got a, the teaching credential at USF and then they offer an attachment of a master's. So I got that at the tail end of my time there. Oh, wow. How long were you in school then? to do this part? So I was there for two years. Part of that time was student teaching. So I was basically an apprentice teacher while I was getting my degree and getting my master's. I was working as a substitute at that school. So I was sort of working and sort of being an apprentice. So it was a, it was a pretty challenging and interesting time. It was really rewarding. My time at USF was uh, worth the money. It was a little bit of a financial investment, but I think I got a lot out of it. And if people are interested in becoming a teacher, they should definitely take a look at USS program because I found it very, very rewarding. 
and really has helped me in my first few years of teaching. So Matt, could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, teaching and what you're doing now and how you became successful in this new arena? Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question of like, what is success as a teacher? <laughs> um, because you have so many students and all teachers are given this ridiculous task and this ridiculous job and this absurd amount of responsibility to teach all these students and to help them grow and help them gain confidence. And one thing that I think is super important is to get to know my students and to ensure th that the knowledge and skills that I'm trying to teach them is building on what they already know and what they can already do. And that takes an enormous amount of work and effort on my part and on the part of the other teachers and of course the students themselves. I think this is common for teachers. They like the discipline that they teach, whether it's science or PE or math or English. And they say, you know what, this is a pretty cool subject. Maybe I'll just become a teacher, right? And so they kind of get into teaching because they like the thing that they are teaching. But what I've learned is that that is really secondary and that the thing that you have to do to be a successful teacher is to genuinely care about your students and get to know them and to listen to them and to honor what they say and to give them opportunities to be candid and to self-reflect and to demonstrate their growth. And I'm still trying to figure that out. It's something that I constantly battle with myself about how to better do that without the foundation of knowing who your students are. It's very, very difficult to be a successful teacher. And especially right now during this time of the pandemic and, you know, whether you're a student or a teacher or a parent, we've all been forced to pivot in one way or another. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience um, with virtual learning, if there's been any complexities or, or just how is it going in general with that? It was a very interesting time last year because it was only my second year of officially teaching at my school. By the second semester, the beginning of 2020, I sort of had a good thing going. I had a, the reputation as a competent and kind and hardworking teacher and the students knew who I was and I was just sort of feeling confident and, and like I was doing good things and I had a lot of purpose in my job. And then March 13th, we went in on a Friday and we sort of just did school as normal, but there were all these rumors about school shutting down. And then the following Monday, school was basically all remote and it's been that way up until today which is uh, October of 2020. And the amount of challenges that teachers and students and parents and everyone in education has been forced to deal with is extraordinary. The most difficult part about it is that it's been really hard to get to know my students in a authentic way because the, the Zoom meetings, you can do your best to uh, be friendly and to ha uh, try to do fun things and do activities with all the ed tech that's available to you. But everyone <laughs> sort of sounds like a robot and they, a lot of times the students will turn off their cameras and mute themselves the whole time. And it becomes just like this perfunctory task that they have to do, but don't really want to do. And I feel often like I'm stuck doing all the work of trying to get students to engage and trying to be friendly and trying to have fun and trying to tell jokes. 
that just takes an enormous amount of energy. And teaching in general is a total energy drain. You you work all day and then you take a break and then you prep for the next day. And on top of that, you have to find time to grade all the papers. So you sort of feel like Sisyphus pushing the rock up and letting it fall back down and doing it over and over again. It becomes even more difficult when you're teaching online because you don't have that foundation of interpersonal relationships with the students anymore. Every connection that you make is really hard fought and it just becomes an enormous challenge just to communicate. There's just the raw inequities of our society that get amplified by this situation. You see it in all sorts of other jobs and all sorts of areas of our society. Public school is a mirror on our society and it tells us a lot about who is in power and who is privileged and who benefits and who, who suffers. And you think about what kinds of things different families and students are struggling with, whether it's loss of a job or loss of a family member, being forced to work when you should be just a student going to school, being forced to stare at a computer all day, or making a choice of whether or not you use your data for your wireless plan to be able to participate in school, whether or not you have that money. All these things are factored into this thing that we're calling remote learning, and it's just exhausting. And it's how do you stay motivated in the face of all of these challenges? The only thing that keeps me motivated are really two things. The first are my other colleagues having a good cohort to talk to and to brainstorm with and to bounce ideas off of is incredibly valuable. And the students themselves, you have to manufacture opportunities for the students to express themselves and to be able to give you that feedback that makes you feel like your job is worth it. It makes you feel like crawling down the hill again and pushing the rock up. So <laughs> yeah, it's been a challenge for sure, but we're, we're making it work. And uh, I'm really proud of my school and my, te- my fellow teachers and myself and the parents, but really I'm most proud of the students. As I'm listening to you, I'm wondering about some of your fellow teachers and how comfortable they feel with these different platforms and with the rules of engagement and how different they are virtually. Especially for people who have been teaching for a long time, I wonder if this is really a barrier for them. Oh, absolutely. There are teachers, not necessarily in my school, but just in general, that are not up to this task. They either, they don't have the heart or they don't want to learn the new things they need to learn to be able to do this job remotely. That means that things are disorganized for students. Lessons are dry and boring and the classes that they're being forced into are not well supported. Of course, it's the students that are in special ed and that are English language learners or are dealing with trauma at home or dealing with financial issues that suffer the most when their teachers aren't putting in the work. For me, it's about figuring out who in my network do I look up to, who do I trust, and who is willing to listen to me so that we can bounce our ideas off of and staying away from from the people that are maybe cynical and toxic and don't want to put in the work. It's much more easy to put to want to put in the work if you got someone there that's struggling along with you. Just like going to the gym, right? It's hard to go by yourself, but if you got someone to hold you accountable and you're working out together and you can chat, it's easier to work out. I really respect the determination to make sure that the students have a positive experience and are actually learning something as opposed to just sitting there and getting the hour in or, or whatever it is for their class. 
Absolutely. Very strange to think about the expectations that are being put on these students. For public schools, this is compulsory. You know, they have to go to school and there are consequences if they don't, quote unquote, attend. What does that mean for my students that are being asked to stare at a screen for X amount of hours per day? And it's sort of like a doctor, like do no harm. I feel that way as a teacher, that it's my responsibility to do no harm. I've been forced to question my own teaching. And I think the silver lining in this pandemic is some of the inequities and some of the things that I don't do right in my regular teaching are being exposed. The reveal encourages me to constantly improve what I do when we do return. There's definitely consequences and there's things that are out of my control, but I'm trying my best to stay positive and have the vision of the future where we can get through this as a school, as a state, as a country, and be able to best support the young people who are eventually going to be out there, regular adults, and doing all the things we need to do. I don't take my job lightly at all. Even just looking at your career path, starting off as a musician and then moving to New York, and then coming back to the Bay Area to get your master's degree in teaching and teaching high school. So it sounds like there's been this continual learning. And I'm curious, what's next for you in your career? What do you see happening in the future? The candid answer is I don't know. And I embrace that. I'm at a, I'm at a place right now where there are definitely opportunities for me to grow. And I'm nowhere near the teacher that I want to be. You know, there's, there's a lot of exercises where teachers sit and write or think about what they want to be as a teacher and what the ideal classroom is and what do students do when they enter your class and, and what is the perfect environment for you. When I think about that and I think about what I want in my classroom, where the students are there because they love it and they are doing all the homework because it's engaging to them and I'm grading fairly and based upon skills that the students are able to actually accomplish, I'm so far behind in that goal. But the good news is that this is a long career for me and I have an opportunity every single day to get better and to think about what I did the last day and reflect upon what went well and what didn't. And there's not much time for me to sit and sulk. I think that's really cool about teaching is that you are challenged every single day and there are days where you will fail. Like I've failed all five of my classes teaching that day and it feels super disheartening. But the good thing is that you got a class the next day and you don't have any time to sit and worry about it. You have to change your mindset immediately to the next day and how are you going to get better? And at the end of the year in June or May, yeah, you feel an enormous amount of relief and you get the reward of summer. And I don't take that for granted, but there's also the rebirth when you go back in the fall. And so for me, like looking forward, my goal is to just continue doing what I'm doing, to get better every single day, to see the failures as opportunities for growth and to pass that message on to my students. Because that's way more important than what I think about my career, about my path. My goal is for my students to struggle and for them to embrace the challenges and for them to want to do the work to be able to get better and equip themselves for whatever opportunities are coming in the future. I guess that's a long way of saying that I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. That's a really inspiring message to help share to the young people of the world and, and your students as well. For right now, what is one tip you would offer to someone who's in a situation, you know, very similar to yours? I think that the most important thing for people to do right now is to allocate time at the end of the day or the end of the week to reflect and to self-assess. 
and to say, what did you want to do? What did you want to accomplish? And how well did you do at that goal? Did you do a decent job or did you do an exemplary job? Did you fail terribly or did you put in the work and it didn't, it just didn't uh, pay out? So much of our culture is about grit and just working hard. And if you don't work hard and you're not just diligent all the time and working, then you're just some lazy loser, right? And it's like this false binary, I suppose, of people who are lazy and people who are hardworking. It's so important for both of those types of people and everyone along that spectrum to stop and reflect and to, for a lot of people to document it, to write it down and to chart it so that you get data on yourself about your progress. If you chart that and you see your growth or you see the trend of you failing or going in the wrong direction, you will be more likely to find the resources or find the needs that you might have to get your goals back on track. I did not do that as much as I should have when I was young. A few people in my teaching credentialing program taught me how to make sure that you allocate time to reflect. If you write down what you've accomplished and where you fell short, and you do that diligently, you're constantly in a state of self-reflection, and that means you're constantly in a state of growth and resetting your goal to become more successful. As trite as it sounds, it's not the destination, it's the journey, and I think that that's really true. Now, I know that you offer some services outside your normal teaching role. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. I am very open about my skills and my knowledge about ed tech and creating Google Slides and using technology in ways that are helpful for all students. I am very open to people reaching out to me about learning some of those skills. On top of that, I am a pretty good editor, and I've helped students write their essays for college or editing resumes, but I'm also someone that likes to help with different types of resources for all people. So whether it's applying for a new job or for writing something or writing copy or creating Google Slides, if you're interested in having me work with you and make sure that it's as good as possible and all your T's are crossed and I's are dotted. You can always reach me by email and I'll be happy to work with you. That would be a really valuable service for other teachers, for parents, for anybody who's suddenly using a lot of new technology. Yeah, absolutely. And I try to stay humble to learn from others, but I also think that it's my responsibility to share that. If you're interested in those kinds of things, get in contact with me and I'd, I'd love to share that. Well, I know that one question that a lot of listeners are going to be wondering about is whether you're still playing music. Frankly, it's a little bit on the back burner, but I do play with a group called Chives. And these are the, the guys that I talked about earlier in the podcast that were living in New York. I do play occasionally with them. And one of them is at, in grad school right now and still lives in New York. And I'm still friends with one who's working here in the Bay Area. But to be frank, my music has been put on the back burner. And a large part of that is because what I do as an educator takes an enormous amount of effort. And so does playing music. Sometimes you have to choose what you want to be exemplary at. What do you want to, what do you want to be like incredibly good at? Some people can be two things. The good thing about music is that you can always have it. There's always an opportunity to express yourself through the music. But for me, my job as an educator is the number one thing for me. And that means sacrificing a lot of things that I like and a lot of things that I want to do so that I can ensure that I'm the best teacher I can be. That's a candid answer about my music playing these days. 
That's great. And how can people reach you? I'm always open to anyone that wants to discuss or talk. You can find my information at my website. My website's just my name, MatthewWohl.com. So just M-A-T-T-H-E-W-W-O-H-L. And I upload all my syllabi and slides and worksheets, and it's all on Google Drive. So if you want to check it out, if you're a teacher or something, and you want to just uh, make a copy of it, I ain't tripping about it. So just go ahead and take a look at it. And you can just email me, which is matthew.wool at gmail. And I'm happy, more than happy to talk or to share resources. And I'm looking forward to hearing from anyone that wants to communicate. Thanks so much, Matt, for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It was awesome talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you as well. So thank you so much for having me on. And that will do it for this week's episode of Pivot. Our guest this week was Matthew Wool, who's a high school English teacher and an academic leader for young students. He currently teaches English language development and a senior year film as literature course. In addition, he's a fabulous editor and is passionate about sharing his knowledge about educational technology, especially during this time of virtual learning. You can find Matt's contact information in the show notes along with our contact information for Pivot Discovery. We provide career services and specialize in career transitions to help individuals reframe their future. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Pivot.